Do you remember when you were a kid and um, your parents would say, did you clean your room? They'd show up, you know, the stairs maybe. Did you clean your room? And you'd say, yeah. And then they would say, okay, I'm going to come up and check. And then you're like, ooh. Because there's more than one version of clean, right? There's a kid's version of clean. There's a teenager's version of clean. There's adult's version of clean. You know, for little kids, as long as there's a couple spots in the floor peeking through that they can kind of hop on like little lily pads on their way to their bed and their dresser, the room is clean, right? And uh, teenagers have a different version of clean. If there's no visible fungi, if there's not bacteria, apparent. It's clean. I know that I've, I've just offended all these kids and teenagers. They're like, not me. I'm a, you're an outlier. So congratulations to you, to those of you that are incredibly tidy. But we have different versions of clean. And we know when mom and dad are, mom or dad are coming upstairs and, and, you know, they have a version of clean that's different than ours. And um, today's text is from Mark chapter 7. And in Mark chapter 7, we find that the religious leaders have a version of clean And Jesus has a version of clean, and they're not the same. And not only that, but the religious leaders have an idea of what makes you clean, and Jesus has an idea of what makes you clean, and it's not the same. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees were gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, They saw that some of his disciples, they ate with hands that were defiled, that is, they were unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, they don't eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. And Jesus said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition." For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father or his mother must surely die. But you say that if a man says to his father and mother, whatever you would have gained uh, from me is korban, that is, hey, it's given to God. And then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. And you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And Jesus called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and he left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it's expelled. Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. And now from there, Jesus arose, and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of Jesus and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged Jesus to cast out the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, Let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered Jesus, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus said to her, Such an answer. Go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is God's word. Now, kids, I want you to look down in your notes here for a moment because there's a couple important things I want you to catch, all right? The religious leaders thought that they could make themselves clean. And in doing so, they rejected Jesus and his grace. But the repentant woman, she acknowledged that she was unclean. And in doing so, she received Jesus and she received his grace. So we're going to explore this text this morning. We're going to kind of ask three questions. What does it mean and why does it still matter and how do we live in light of it? So first of all, what does it mean? Well, according to the Mosaic cleanliness laws, you had to ceremonially wash yourself before coming to the temple to worship God, who was perfectly loving, perfectly holy, perfectly clean, because by you, by comparison, were unclean. And anyone who was unclean could not worship. Now, maybe you're new to Christian faith or you're exploring, considering Christianity, and you're thinking to yourself right now, see, this is exactly what offends me about God. This is exactly what offends me about Christianity. God should accept whatever I give. Whatever I give him, if it's my best shot, God should just accept that, and I'm angry that it's not good enough. The cleanliness laws existed to show you that nothing you could ever do could possibly be good enough. I know that's offensive, but I'll consider it this way. I'll explain it this way for you kids who are in here. When Rebecca was little, we went to this store called Build-A-Bear. And Rebecca picked out the bear. She picked out the color of the bear. She picked out the clothes of the bear. And then she dressed the bear. And then she accessorized the bear. And then she stuffed the bear. And the last thing you get to do in Build-A-Bear, before you walk out the door, is you get to put your voice in the bear. You see, the idea that God should just accept our best shot at it, that's build a God. That's build a Bible. That's not a God. I mean, how small are you and I? And just think about it logically. I mean, what are the odds that if if there was an omnipotent creator that spoke and spun the cosmos into existence, that he would think like you, agree with you on all things, and that he would not call you into reform? That doesn't doesn't land. So you see, I know that it's offensive, and I share any offense, because I, I, I too wish that everything that I thought and felt and wanted, God was like, yeah, I'm okay with this. But the the cleanliness laws existed. These washings, the constant washings existed to show you um, that it was impossible to be clean and it was impossible to stay clean and you could only be with God if you were clean. And so Jesus agreed with the religious leaders that that everybody was unclean. But he disagreed with the religious leaders totally on how you became clean. You see, keeping the law never made you clean. Kids, look down in your notes again. I want you to catch this. It's very important for you as you grow up in the church, okay? 
Keeping the law never made you clean. You kept God's law because you were trusting in the promise of God's grace. That one day, God would send a Savior who would come and make the unclean clean. That was why you kept the law. The Bible is very clear that no one was ever made clean or saved by keeping the law. Salvation does not come by the law, it comes by grace. Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10. They are explicit that God's law, it foreshadowed God's grace. John chapter 1 and verse 17 says that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the true temple. He's the ultimate sacrifice. And so that cleanliness law existed to show you that you needed grace. It didn't exist to clean you. But this is how the the, the Pharisees and all kind of forms of dead religion relate to God. Do this and God accepts you. Do this and now you're clean and God says you're all right now. It's impossible. That's not what the law was for. I'll, uh, I'll give you another picture, kids, who are in here. All right? Uh, if you're, you're walking home from school on a nice sunny day and you walk by this fence and there's a sign on it and it says, Wet paint. Now, I need you kids to know something. All of the adults in here would be like, Let me just see. Hmm. It is a little tacky. Because the law is there to show you what's inside you. That's what it's there for. And so what's hilarious is that the purpose of the law was not to save you, but to show you what's inside you, to alert you to the fact that you need a savior inside you. That's what the cleanliness laws were for. And of course, once you come to faith in Christ, the law then guides you, okay? But the religious leaders, they had no need of Jesus, the savior, because through their rule keeping, they were their own savior. And that's why, think about it, of all the questions they could have asked Jesus, We've been going through Mark chapter by chapter. Remember, think of what he's done. He's healed the blind. He's healed, he's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's calmed the storm. Of all the questions they could ask Jesus, this is what the religious mind comes up with. I want to know why your disciples don't wash their hands. That's the best question you can come up with? This man has raised the dead. He's, he is literally walking through the city and sick people are being healed. And this is the question you want to ask him? Yes, this is the question they want to ask him. Why don't you wash your hands? So that's what it means. But why does this still matter? I mean, why does this matter for us? Well, it matters because there's endless ways, whether you're a person of faith or non-faith today, endless ways to deal with our guilt and our shame, our hurt, our discontent, try and make ourselves clean, be seen as clean from the outside in. The religious leaders had an outside-in cleansing program. And whether you're a person of faith or non-faith, we're attracted to outside-in cleansing programs. In verse 14 to 16, Jesus says that humanity's problem is not outside us. It's inside us, right? It's offensive because broadly speaking, as moderns, we have rejected, well, we've, we've either rejected that there is a God or we have agnostic fantasies about God in the sense that there's no divine standard for truth. God just kind of rubber stamps whatever we say or speak as our truth. That's kind of our agnostic fantasy about God as moderns. And so consider it. Think about this. Do you know how easy it is to find somebody who is willing to give you a technique or a book or a master class on how to manage the problem that is outside you? Do you know how easy that is? And do you know how hard it is to find somebody who will look at you and look at you in the eye and say your problem is you? problem is inside you this is 
What Jesus is saying is it's a total affront to our culture. It was offensive when he said it 2,000 years ago, and it's just as offensive today. Because we want to locate all of our problems outside us. And so, of course, the Pharisees are trusting in a form of religious salvation externally, incapable of renewing them internally. But as I said, we can fall into dead religion and do that. Or you can be a person that is non-religious at all and do the same thing. If you consider the great minds who formed political philosophy, political science, that has formed the way we think here in the West, it is fundamentally at its core a form of secular salvation. And when you read Plato and Aristotle, they'll use this kind of language. There's no God to save us, right? We must, through our intellect, education, nobility, justice, we must save ourselves. And so you find this. And so since Plato and Aristotle and others, the, the art of political science is the endeavor to create a society of liberty and justice and flourishing without the need of God. And so while these are all good, you know, there's wisdom in good systems and just legislation and education, they're good and they're important and they're formative, but they're limited. They're all limited because they're all engaging from the outside in. It is an outside mechanism trying to work toward in on the, into the heart of man. And fundamentally, these are incapable of renewing us internally. For example, if you read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, he'll use language like this. He'll say, virtue and vice are both in our hand. The power to be vicious or the power to be virtuous are in our hand. So what you must do is you must deliberate over what is good. You must deliberate over what is good for the city. And in your deliberation and choice and in that desire for nobility and in raising children of nobility, they will then make these good choices so that society can flourish. You'll find that language in, in Aristotle's ethic. Now, that is all. Th- there is a lot of wisdom there. But it's limited wisdom. Because it's from the out, it's like, it's like the Pharisees. It's from, they're tr- we're trying to clean ourselves from the outside in. And I'm going I'm to illustrate the limitation of Aristotle's ethic, where he says, if we all would just, if we would just be noble and just, then the society would be. Here's the limitation. And for the kids that are in here, right, the picture, you know, because I don't know how excited they are about Aristotle, probably not very excited. Was that an amusement park? There's a little kid in a car. There's a center rail, and it's metal. The kid can turn that car wherever he wants, but the center rail keeps the kid on the road. And I'm in the car. I think it might have been Isaiah or Rebecca. They were little. And I'm in the car behind this child. And so we're letting our children drive, and the parents are in the passenger seat, and the, the bang, 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 as the kids are driving like this, bang, bang, hitting the center rail, keeping them on the road. The kid in front is leaning on the steering wheel. He's turned it all the way to the left and he's leaning on it and now the rim is grinding on the rail and he goes around the entire track like this. It's just screeching like a witch burning. The law is like that rail. Okay? The law is like that rail. And what, what we learn is this. In that analogy, the rail kept the car on the track. Okay? Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, I mean, if you were to, you know, he's saying this is how you stay on the track. The law kept the child on the track. The child wanted off the track. Right? And this is the limitation of good systems. This is the limitation of just legislation. This is the limitation of education. Here, Here it is. Did the child stay on the track? Yes. 
Did everybody else in the amusement park benefit from that child staying on the track? Yes. Would the child have abandoned the track at its first opportunity? Yes. Did the track change the child? No. And that is the limitation of religious outside-in programs, of political outside-in programs. That is the limitation. It cannot reform us. And so in verses 17 through 19, Jesus gets really graphic in a way that only Jesus can, as the disciples are like, we don't understand. And Jesus says, I'm going to get graphic to show you the futility of the, of the Pharisees, of trusting in something externally to change you and save you and clean you internally. And Jesus goes, you know that everything you put in your mouth goes into the toilet, right? It's a pretty good rendering of the Greek, actually. You know everything you put in your mouth goes in the toilet, right? That's what he said. It's not going into your heart. It's going into your stomach. And why does Jesus get so graphic? He's not getting graphic unnecessarily because the Pharisees thought the problem was outside them in the society and the solution was inside them in their religious piety. Right? And the position of non-faith puts the problem outside us in society and puts the solution inside us, our political piety. Right? Release the inner hero. This is, what we, this is what we say and we can change the world. And I'm not being a pessimist because there's glorious things and beautiful things in the world. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. See, our culture doesn't believe there's a thing such as sin, but we all deal with very real feelings of guilt over things that we've done, we've left undone. We know the pervasive sense of discontent, like something deep inside us is telling us that we're not enough. And even though culturally we've abandoned the idea of sin, we have this inescapable concern that people cannot know everything about us or they would reject us. You wouldn't want everybody to know everything you thought and felt this week and throughout your life. You wouldn't want that broadcasted because the fear of rejection, and we all share this, and we can't deny that when we look at the landscape of the world, there's something definitely wrong, and for all of our talk about releasing our inner heroes, we've been talking like that for millennia, and we can't seem to make ourselves clean. You know, right after World War II, there was British intellectuals that had a crisis of worldview. They had a crisis because, of course, if you don't believe in sin, they had no categories for the Nazis and the Nazi sympathizers because you can't talk about sin and evil if you don't believe in that. So they, they, they actually had, it was quite a crisis. And there was one writer, um, his name was uh, David Cecil, and in 1946, he wrote this. He said, the jargon of the philosophy of progress has taught us to think that the savage and primitive state of mankind is behind us, but barbarism is not behind us, it's within us. So he was having a crisis. What do we do? And then a year later, in 1947, there was a writer and a poet, student of classical and modern language. Her name was Dorothy Sayers, and Dorothy wrote a book called Creed or Chaos, and in her book, this is what she said. She said, politics operates on the basis that what's wrong with society is not in the heart, but it's in social structures and a lack of education. And we think that by filling the education gap, society would achieve greatness. But if you consider the landscape of society today, 72 years later, what do we find? What we find is our world is a paradox. It is just as much a paradox today as it was the day after World War II ended. Beauty in the world. There is beauty and atrocity. There is joy and there's pain. There is justice, and there is inhumanity. There is generosity in the world, and there's radical oppression. You can always find something worth celebrating, because there's so much beauty to be celebrated. And there is no shortage of things at the exact same time 
that are infuriating. And it is not for our lack of education. Because for all of our efforts, we cannot clean ourselves from the outside in. And this is what Jesus is pushing at, and it, it, is, it is provocative. In verse 21, he challenges this. Jesus says, it's out of our hearts. And then he gives this list, and it's a damning list. Jesus says, out of our hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. He says out of hearts, kids, why do we do, why do, we do all these things? I mean, I mean, you would think that education could solve that. Yet it hasn't solved it. Why? I'll give you a picture of why. This past summer, went into the garage, saw this little chipmunk sitting on Nigel's baseball bag, eating his sunflower seeds, filling his cheeks with sunflower seeds. And I walked in the garage, and the chipmunk looked at me, and it was like, and it ran out of there, and I kind of had to chase it out of the chase it out of the uh, garage, and that thing was afraid for its life. And then I went in the next day, and there was the same little chipmunk sitting on top of Nigel's baseball bag with the, the, with, with the, with the, thing, with the bag of spits open, stuffing his face full of sunflower seeds. Because that little chipmunk had an appetite. That little chipmunk had something in its nature. It was in its nature, it was appetite of it, that it wanted it. We like to think that our brains are at the hierarchy of the human existence, but it is not, we're not brains on sticks. We are not headed, we're not walking around through the world as brains on sticks. We are primarily loving things, not simply thinking things. The great philosopher Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And his philosophy was that the body is essentially this brain transportation unit. And so if we can just educate, then we're going to solve all of society's problems. I mean, I'm speaking very broadly here, but if you've read Descartes, understand the philosophy is that the intellect is at the top. But what the scriptures provoke us to consider, and what other philosophers throughout church history, like Augustine, provoke us to consider, is the brain is not at the top. The appetite is at the top. The appetite is at the top, and, and it is the appetite that causes the brain to justify what the appetite wants. Right? And so, that's what Jesus is getting at here, precisely here. He's saying, there's, this outside-in program is not, going, is, not, is not going to work. So his, his statement is provocative. The problem is not the society outside us. The problem is sin inside us. The, the solution is not inside us. Our, our religious piety, our piety it's, it's outside us. It's Christ the Savior. You know, the bad news about Jesus' list, if you read that list, the bad news is that it accuses every single one of us. But the good news is Christ did not come to accuse every single one of us. Christ came to exonerate every single one of us. You see, the bad news is that before God, the verdict would be guilty, but the good news is Jesus Christ did not come to bang the gavel and say, you're guilty. Jesus Christ came to give us a verdict that was not guilty. And so if your approach to Christian faith is like the Pharisee, you're going to have no rest and you're going to have no renewal because if you're the one that's cleansing you, then no matter what you're doing, more could be done. How much did you pray this week? Oh, the guilt. How much did you read the scriptures this week and meditate? How much did you do? You see, if, you're the, if the purpose of doing that is to clean you, then you're not doing enough. That's the answer, right? And then you leave this place feeling guilty. But when you realize that the verdict is already not guilty, now you pray from the love of, from the love of God, not to prove yourself clean to God. And now you read the scriptures and you teach your children the scriptures, not to prove that you're clean before God, but from the love of God. And so this is why Christ came. Not to accuse us, but to exonerate us. And then in verse 19, he proves this by doing something pretty radical. We miss it. In verse 19, it says that he declared all foods clean. 
Now, for us, we're likely to declare all foods clean and we just move on, but that's because we're moderns. But you know what? For 1,500 years, all of the religious, religious leaders were like, we've got to wash and, you know, this food is clean, this food is not clean. And here Jesus, he doesn't ask anybody's permission. He doesn't give any warning. He just declares that everything's clean now. See, there's a pattern developing in Mark that we need to understand. Jesus calls the sick to be healed. Jesus calls the dead to rise. Jesus calls the, sh- the storm to sh- shushes the hurricane because he's the creator that spun the world into existence anyway. He called the world into existence. He calls the storm to be calm. And now he calls everything clean. Calls all the food clean. Doesn't ask anybody's permission. What is happening here? He's sending a message. Here's the message Jesus, sent. Jesus sends. There is nothing you can do to cleanse you. I cleanse you. So how do we respond to all this? How do we live in light of God's grace? Well, we don't relate like the Pharisees. We relate like that woman at the end of the story. That Syrophoenician Gentile woman. See, Jesus left, Jesus left Jerusalem and he went outside to get some rest and then she finds him. And we relate like her. See, on the surface, it seems like he's insulting her. Because in this culture, we love dogs. In that culture, and many cultures around the world, they don't love dogs. So it's hard for us to catch this. But anyways, it was typical of the ancient world that the Jews would call all the other nations of the world, they would call them dogs. And, and by dog, they didn't mean your cute pet at home. Uh, the, the word for dog in the Greek was kuan, which meant uh, despised mangy mutt, a mooch pooch. Okay? If you read Homer, Homer used it this way too, the ancient writer Homer in Greek. They would, when they called you a dog, they were saying you're a scavenger. You're taking advantage of people and things. And t- okay? So the Jews would call the Gentiles dogs. And so it looks like, it looks like a pretty tremendous insult, insult. But you want to know something? Jesus doesn't use that word. That word is not recorded here. The kuan. Jesus, go, Jesus doesn't say to this woman, you're a, design, you're, you're a, you're a uh, diseased mangy animal, you know. What, he's, what, he, what he says is, he uses the Greek word kunarian, which means puppy, small dog. And so what Jesus does is he says to this mother, she comes to him, she's pleading for her child. So Jesus says to this mother, you know, the children have to eat before the puppies. It's wrong to violate that order. Jesus came to fulfill the promise of God for Israel, and then right after his resurrection, what were the first words out of Jesus' mouth? Go into all the world. What do you think Jesus' heart was towards all the other nations? Do you think he was like, well, these are the people that God loves, and everybody else a bunch of mangy, diseased animals? Jesus came for all of us mangy, diseased animals. From God's point of view, nobody's clean, including Israel, which means everybody's diseased mangy, and he comes to save. So what does Jesus do? Jesus is not giving this woman an insult. He's giving her a parable. He's saying, you need to understand there's a divine order to my ministry. I'm going to Israel first. I'm going to the other nations later. And you know what? The woman hears the parable. The woman understands who she is in the parable. And then she responds to Jesus in the context of the parable. In other words, she receives grace because she's willing to go to Jesus on his terms, not hers. As moderns, we think God should accept us. We should come to God on our terms. We set the terms. God should be okay with the terms. This woman receives grace because she goes to Jesus on Jesus' terms, not her own terms. This woman doesn't say, how dare you call me unclean? This woman says, yes, Lord, I understand I'm unclean. Think about how contradictory that is to the Pharisees who think they're clean. 
The Pharisees are like, we're clean. This woman is like, yes, Lord, I understand that I'm unclean. But the puppies and the children, they eat from the same table. And I need to receive grace from your table. And I know that I don't have a right to be at your table. But there's enough for me at your table. And I need it now. And this woman, she comes to Jesus in this way. And this is hard for us as moderns to grasp this exchange. Because you know what we do? We assert our rights. We assert what we're owed. Well, this is, what I'm, this is my right. This is what I'm owed. Well, God should be okay with me because of the. Well, God should condescend to. He should be all right with us. We want to set the terms. That's how, as moderns, we think about it. You know what this woman does? This woman goes, no, Jesus, I get that you set the terms. I get that where I fit into this whole thing, and now I'm coming to you for grace. I acknowledge I'm unclean. I need your grace. It's, an, it's unbelievable. And Jesus is blown away. He's thrilled by her response. She doesn't say, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, Jesus, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. That's the gospel. That's why Christ came. She gets it. Jesus is blown away by it. And she receives his great grace. That's the gospel. And through this parable, Jesus is both challenging her and he's inviting her. He's challenging her to see that she doesn't deserve grace. And in doing so, he invites her to confess her need for grace. And she does. And through this parable, Jesus is both challenging you and he's inviting you. He's challenging you to see that you don't deserve grace. And he's inviting you to confess your need for his grace. Right? Will you? And like we've been saying through this study, Jesus is unlike every other king. He's not taking up power. He's laying it down. He's giving it away. He's not a king who came to bring God's divine retribution on you because you're unclean. He came to bear God's divine retribution for you and make you clean. And so maybe you're like the religious leaders and you're offended that God would dare call you unclean. You're offended that God doesn't stoop to your standards or bend to your will. And I'd invite you to respond to his challenge and his invitation like this woman. See the magnificence of, of his grace. Bend your knee to the greatness of the Lord of grace. Receive the grace of Jesus. He cleanses you from the inside out. You know, on the cross, Jesus became like a despised dog. He was like a dog that was cast out from his father's table so that you and I could be adopted as sons and daughters and have a seat at the father's table. Don't believe the lie that you're so unclean that you're out of the grasp of Christ's grace. And don't believe the lie that you're, you're so clean and put together you've somehow graduated from the need of Christ's grace. But believe what Jesus said. There's nothing you can do that will cleanse you. He cleanses you. Let's pray.